Hello, hello, this is Jonathan and you're listening to the Johnny Talks Podcast, the place where we help you achieve your financial goals. Hola amigos, hope you're having a great day wherever you are. And if you're a new listener to the show, special warm welcome to you. I really appreciate you tuning into the show. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back. I appreciate it even more. In today's episode, we will speak to my friend Doug Norman, also known as Nords, and his daughter Carol Pittner. We connected through the FinCon community, as Doug is quite active there. Both of them have had military careers as Navy officers. Well, actually, Carol is a reservist at the moment. And Doug has retired in 2002 at age 41. Carol is currently in her late 20s, and she's already rapidly approaching financial independence as well. We will discuss what it feels like to be retired at a young age, how Doug worked his way towards financial independence before the fire movement even was a thing. We will exchange both interesting and fun anecdotes with Carol on how it was to grow up in a money-savvy environment. So topics today will include frugality, financial independence, financial literacy throughout childhood, investing in the stock markets through various recessions, and so on and so on. So all in all, it will be a lot of valuable information for you, all brought to you in an easy-to-understand conversation. And even though I do not have kids myself, I really like the topic of uh, teaching kids about money, because to me, childhood is where your core beliefs and thoughts about money, and actually other topics, uh, are shaped. So it all starts from there. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed uh, the conversation with Doug and Carol and enjoyed their uh, complicity. It, was, uh, it made the conversation extra nice. This episode is for you. If you're wondering what it feels like to retire early, I mean, we've talked about the FIRE movement on the podcast and we've had people wanting to reach FIRE or well on their way there. But now we have someone actually that is that has retired early for already 18 years. So this episode is a great opportunity to listen to what it looks like, what the motivation was and what's the current lifestyle. And this episode is as well uh, for you. Uh, if you're a young parent wanting to teach your kids to become money savvy as well. So without further ado, let's hear the interview. Hello, Doug and Carol. How are you doing today? Hello, John. It's good to talk to you. And I'm doing well too. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing fine here. It's uh, evening time here in Luxembourg in Europe. Uh, what time is it uh, where you are, guys? Well, it's uh, 7 a.m. here and uh, another beautiful day in Hawaii. Wow. Mm-hmm. Not as beautiful in California, but it is 10 a.m. here. <laughs> 10 a.m., 10 a.m. Well, thanks for connecting. It's great to, to speak to you, even with a 12-hour difference. I don't think I had a guest uh, with that long, uh, how can I say, the time difference. Time difference, yeah. It, it's, it's halfway around the globe, and uh, it happens a lot out here. Yeah, yeah crazy, crazy. And uh, yeah, Doug and Carol, well, uh, Doug, you're Carol's father, and um, you wrote a book together. That, that is published uh, around these times, raising your money-savvy family for the next generation financial independence. And is it uh, just released or uh, will it be released? Well, we, we just finished the editing process okay. and now we're into the uh, cover design and formatting the uh, book for print and for ebook. Uh, Carol and I are also uh, doing the recording for the audiobook. You know, we each have our own individual sections of the book. We go back and forth in the narrative. So the uh, podcast, the, the audio book editor has to uh, stitch together, I don't know what, Carol, probably 50 or 60 uh, individual sections to get one audio book out of it. Give or take. We look like, we, we think we're going to publish here in about two months. It'll probably be uh, late May, early June. 
Mm -hmm. Okay, well, we'll talk about it more in details at the end of the show. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Carol and Doug, one of the reasons uh, I uh, invited you on the podcast uh, is because, well, Doug, you, um, you've been already retired for uh, 17, 18 years now. Um, yep. You retired at age 41 in 2002. So that's quite unconventional. And uh, yeah, Carol, you are um, in your late 20s. And you're about to retire as well very soon. I don't know when is the, the plan or the, how the math plays out for you. When do you think you're going to retire? So technically, we've already reached lean five. So technically, we're already at the, the very minimum that we could get by with life. But my husband, he's also in the military. We were both Navy. And for him, there's a couple more things that he wants to do first. So there's one more duty station, maybe two more duty stations we want to do first. Mm -hmm. And so we already have five. We are, we're capable of going out and living on our own, but we're not quite ready to go there for other reasons yet. Well, that's impressive. And um, yeah, Doug, um, back to you, because the thing is on the podcast, we've had a few guests talking about the FIRE movement, financial independence, retire early for the listeners. And um, most of the guests, they are in their late 30s and they just enter the FIRE, uh, sorry, uh -huh. enter the early retirement, or some are in the late 20s as well, a bit like you, Carol. And Impressive. they are, they are uh, working hard on it. Or uh, they are, yeah, maybe they will get it within one or two years. So I haven't heard an experience of what it is to be retired early at 41 and uh, what people do, uh, you know, during their days. Uh, how <laughs> what do you do all day? Yeah, what do you that's do right. all day? That's right. That's the yeah. question. <laughs> well, it, some people have uh, no reason to stop working. So uh, we talk about financial independence and uh, we would talk about retiring early. But sometimes people are just uh, talking about retiring early because what they really want to do is change to a different job or change to a different quality of life and make their lives better. Uh, when I reached 20 years of active duty in the U.S. Navy, uh, I knew that I could do another career, but I wanted to spend more time with family and I wanted to have a better quality of life. Uh, it was uh, a lot of work during the active duty days and I was ready for a break. So it's been 18 years and uh, I've been chronically unemployed, but actually I've <laughs> found plenty to do. And in Carol's position, uh, if uh, her spouse is having fun, if the job that he's got is challenging and fulfilling, uh, just just like we were 30 years ago when we were at that uh, Monterey Naval Postgraduate School, uh, I'd keep going. I'd stick around for another tour of active duty. Mm -hmm. But uh, life life here and uh, financial independence with retirement in Hawaii and uh, surfing and all the other nice things that we get to do, uh, I'm quite happy. And the question that a lot of people have is, well, what do you do all day? Are you bored yet? You can't <laughs> possibly surf all day, every day. Uh, I, I can try. But but the answer is that you uh, you have to retire to something. When you stop working for a paycheck, you have to design your own life. You're responsible for your own time. You're responsible for your own entertainment. And uh, I feel like every day I've got all these things I want to do, and I really only get half of them done. That sounds trite, but there's always plenty to do, and I uh, haven't had any boredom yet. I uh, don't see it happening. Okay, that's good. And one question to you, Doug. Um because you mentioned a fulfilling career, etc., were you not fulfilled as a navy uh, navy officer? Well, we I did twenty years of active duty, mm -hmm. and the first ten years uh, were were great, challenging, and fulfilling. Had a couple of uh, good submarine tours. Uh, did a lot of good things that uh, we don't discuss in the U.S. submarine force, but a lot of good things, <laughs> uh, and it was very enjoyable. Uh, the change was in 1992 when we started our family. 
And uh, shortly, yeah, Carol's looking back <laughs> on that. You were there. Uh, mm-hmm. But the the issue was that I wanted to spend more time with family. Uh, I wanted a better quality of life. And my starting a family, my my priorities just completely changed over. Uh, I'd, I'd never been a parent before. And it was fascinating. It was difficult. It was challenging. It was time <laughs> consuming. Uh, there wasn't much sleep. But uh, I wanted to spend more time and and do more of that. And that was difficult to combine with being on active duty in the Navy. Uh, for people who are contemplating a career like that, where it's a long work week, a very intense time and long days, I would say that if you can find a way to cut back, find a way to go part time, that way you can get most of the good things and less of the sucky parts uh, in the U.S. military, for example, one, one way to do that would be to leave active duty and go to uh, the reserves. You know, you're essentially still in the military, but you're only doing maybe one weekend a month and a couple of weeks a year. Okay, very good. And and uh, what is your um, what do you want to retire to? Actually, Carol, is it the same for your family? You just had a daughter. Mm-hmm. And so that's really the big thing was it's just like that. I've only done five years of active duty. My first tour, that was a lot of fun. My second tour, there were goods and there were bads. And I got to the point where, you know, my husband and I, we've been married at that point for several years and we wanted to start our family. There's, there's no time like your twenties to start your family. And <laughs> we, we, we had that feeling that we're just like, well, you know, he really likes his job. He got this great offer to go to Naval postgraduate school here in Monterey. But for me, there was, there was, there was going to be a couple of drug deals, so to speak. I was going to have to do either a job I didn't want to do, or I was going to have to go and live elsewhere for a while, and I didn't want to do that. And then, in addition, there was there were some jobs I just wasn't interested in doing at all. And so I did exactly what Dad mentioned. I decided that I just wanted to step down from active duty mm-hmm. and go into the reserves. And so that's actually what I'm doing out here in Monterey is I'm part of a reserve unit, and I do the weekend a month and a two weeks a year. And so when it came to retirement, it wasn't necessarily retirement that was the goal, but it was the idea to be able to step down from working full time and just spend more time with their daughter at home. And it's been working out really nicely. Yeah. Li- living on your own terms, actually. Yeah. Especially the part where she spits up six ounces of, of milk. Oh, yeah. Three minutes <laughs> before the podcast. Yes. <laughs> very good. Very good. And then um, one thing, um, of course, well, Doug, uh, especially for you. Because, okay, you've been retired in 2002, and you know, That's right. the, the FIRE movement is something, I mean, I've discovered it four years ago. That's when I started to read personal finance blogs, etc. Oh, it's been around for a bit longer, but it's a fairly recent uh, movement. So um, what sparked the idea of trying to become financially independent uh, as early as possible, or at least uh, how, where did you find your sources? As well, 2002, it's, uh, I think... We got internet connection at home in the late 90s, like 99 <laughs> or 2000. So I was not very active on uh, on looking at financial blogs or whatever. So where did you look for information in 1985, for example? This this feels like uh, back in the, in the early days when woolly mammoths roamed the earth and dinosaurs had just been extinct, <laughs> and we we did this we did this with clay tablets and wooden sticks. Yeah, but exactly. the reality. <laughs> The reality was that in 1992, after after Carol was born, and I started looking around. You know, mm. what what can I do? Uh, I, I I know I can retire from the military in 10 years, and I don't know what I want to do, but I don't want to do this again. And so I just started spending time in the library and spending time reading everything I could. And in 1993, a book was published in America that today everybody says is a classic, but back in 1993 when it came out, everybody looked at it and said, huh, this is a little strange. And the name of the book is Your Money or Your Life. 
and it was written by Joe Dominguez and Vicky Robin, and we all know Vicky Robin today. Uh, Joe had reached financial independence in the 1960s, over 50 years ago. Wow. And he and Vicky had connected later on and started uh, giving talks to small groups. Uh, they had actually put out audio cassettes that you could listen to uh, in the 20th century version of a podcast. Do, do you know what's and, a radio cassette, uh, Carol? I actually know what those are. Unfortunately, there are many aspects of my job in the military where I have to actually use an audio cassette. So there's, there's a lot of uh, dinosaur technology that I've unfortunately had to learn to use just in case. So that was... That was going on in the 70s and 80s. And when that book came out in 1993, uh, Marge and I read it, and we knew that that was a big piece of the puzzle that was missing. And and like you, we didn't really have internet connection. We didn't really get onto the World Wide Web until the mid-90s, I guess, probably around 95, 96. And by then, the next book came out, The Millionaire Next Door. And Tom Stanley uh, was marketing to rich people. He had a pretty good handle on how to do that. And he began wondering, how do these people turn into millionaires? And once again, we realized that if we kept up our high savings rate, that we were going to be on that track in, in American or in euros, American dollars or euros, mm -hmm. to reach that millionaire status, to be financially independent. But more importantly, we didn't need a lot of money to live the lifestyle we were already enjoying. So those two books in the 90s made me realize what we could do, what we could achieve. Now, at the time, I was scared to leave active duty and go to the reserves or to get out of the military completely. And as we got to the later 90s, I had a job that was a better job than I'd had before. I was in a place in the military at, at a training command, and, and I really liked being an instructor. And so life was not too bad, and I stayed until 20 years. But those two books gave us the power to realize that what we really wanted to do was save money, invest, and they have more control over our careers. Maybe we're going to take a different career. Maybe we're going to keep on working. Maybe we're going to completely retire. In my case, uh, I, back in 2002, I wanted to spend a few months with family. And uh, 18 years later, I'm still enjoying doing that. Yeah, that's excellent. And you, Carol, um, I mean, okay, you've obviously been raised by Doug, but did you read any books or did you get inspired yourself to, to, um, to retire <laughs> early in another way than... Uh, the, the short answer is no. Uh, the long answer is dad didn't find out the answer was no until we started writing the book. Uh, what had happened was as a kid, dad is <laughs> always voraciously reading. I mean, he's the kind of person that has 12 books stacked up on the side table next to his chair. And I could never keep up with that pace. You know, I was a modern American child. There was video games, there was playing outside, there was watching TV, there was all this other important stuff. And so there were many, many years where dad would say, hey, I think you should read this book. And it was Your Money or Your Life, The Millionaire Next Door. Uh, there was a couple of books in Habits and things like that. And I never read them. But what did work was that dad would also give me one or two page magazine or internet articles. He would actually print it out from the internet. And a lot of them were about money. I remember I actually still have a couple of those articles. Uh, one magazine talked about your portfolio allocations. So when you're 20, it should look like this. When you're 30, it should look like this. When you're 40, 50, 60, and so on. And then other articles would be things about, you know, this is what consumers spend their money on when it comes to cars or when it comes to clothes. And it was, it was easier for me to digest those one to two page articles instead of, hey, here's a, you know, 300 page book for you to read oh wow yeah indeed you know we are uh you know 300 pages or one page article well i think the choice is made because there's those video games <laughs> or uh, whatever huh? <laughs> exactly there are more important things to the kid yeah <laughs> exactly exactly uh, and um doug what was your um strategy then to to reach i mean to save all that money uh, to be able to retire at uh, a young age 
Was it investing in the stock markets, in the low-cost index funds? Was it investing in stocks or real estate? How did you, you manage to save all that money? Well, we mostly lived a frugal lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And people have picked up the impression from the media, you know, The Guardian or a CNBC or Yahoo Finance, that uh, when you're trying to save for financial independence, that you're making these tremendous sacrifices. Uh, you're dumpster diving for your food, you're recycling toilet paper, you're wearing uh, used clothes until they will fall off your body. You, you live in the basement of your parents and this kind of stuff. Oh, things. great technique. Yeah. <laughs> great living technique. in basements. Yeah. That, yeah. Uh -huh. you, you found out my secrets. No, yep. but that's not the way it works. When you're frugal, it's challenging and fulfilling. You're optimizing your lifestyle. You're spending your money where it gives you the most value for the things that you enjoy doing. And it, and it feels like winning. Uh, and so my spouse and I, we're both the dual income couple for most of our careers. And so we tried to save as much as we could. We managed to keep up a savings rate of at least 40% for most of two decades. Uh, you know, it was rocky sometimes, but we saved as much as we could because we were frugal and mindful of our spending. That high savings rate, that made all the difference. Now, we invested in the typical stuff that you could get in America in the 1980s and 1990s. Mutual funds mostly. And back then they were expensive. You know, you had high expense ratios and active management and all the urban legends of how you were supposed to invest back then. If I was starting over today, <clears throat> I would just do it in a, a passively managed index fund mm -hmm. with low expense ratios. But we did keep an asset allocation that was high in stocks and equities. And we did that because we were pretty sure that at least one of us was going to have a job the whole time. We were pretty sure that we had highly reliable employment. And so keeping equities for that 20 years when I was on active duty, uh, we continued that in retirement because I have a military pension. And so we have a little bit of income coming in every month, a real reliable annuity payment like longevity insurance. Uh, you can be more aggressive with the rest of your portfolio. So even today, we're uh, still greater than 95% equities, and uh, I see that continuing. Our, our portfolio has grown very well over the last 18 years. You probably know from the, the math of the 4% safe withdrawal rate that if you're invested aggressively, that most of the time you end up with more money than you need, and that's what's happened to us. Okay. Uh, and Carol, do you follow the, the exact same strategy then, or when did you start? So there's a couple of different strategies. Uh, technically, I started around age 10 or 11 when I gave $100 of my money to the dad and we played around with stocks. But that's not a you know that's not real. That was just me <laughs> giving my allowance money to dad. Um, I would say the true starting age was age 14. Uh, that's the youngest legal age that you can work in the state of Hawaii. And so that's when I was able to open a Roth IRA and I could actually start putting money into my Roth IRA. Oh, okay. And then from there, I could choose you know within I had my IRA with T Rowe Price at the time, so I could choose different mutual funds within T Rowe Price's uh, offer that I could invest that money in. Now, as things happened over the years, you know, I grew up and then I was legally 18. So I was able to move that whole Roth IRA from T. Rowe Price over to Fidelity. And that opened up a whole new bunch of options as well. Okay. So then you've been investing for almost 15 years. Pretty much. So I, you know, dad has a, a lot of people will find out about financial independence and the whole concept of it in their 20s and 30s. Mm -hmm. But I had a slight advantage that I had known about it since I was about, well, not financial independence, but I'd known about frugality and I'd known about investing since I was 10. So yeah. like you said, I had that extra decade on top of everybody else that I could work towards. Yeah. But then in, in a way, it's quite good news because then that means that let's say somebody is 30 and listening or even 40. Then, I mean, you still have time to build, uh, to start and uh, build a 
a solid portfolio and retire still earlier than the traditional uh, age, which is a 65, 67 here, uh, or I guess it's similar age in the US, but uh, yes, yeah, so, so you can still start today. Absolutely. Exactly. And it's, it's not, it's not uh, when you start that's important, it's how long you spend on it. And mm. uh, you know, the best time to start would have been when we were all 12 years old, but <laughs> the second best time to start is today. And if you have a high savings rate, you can reach financial independence. Uh, most people do in about 20 years. I mean, I, I know extreme savers who will reach financial independence uh, in less than 10 years. And I know other people who do it in 25 or 30 years. Mm -hmm. And even now, I mean, now it's uh, a time of recording. We are uh, facing this coronavirus. The stocks, uh, uh, the stock market tanked. Uh, we are in a bear market. Would you still say, well, it's a good time to start investing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, this is an awesome time to start investing. Oh, yeah. So uh, for, for my family personally, uh, we we heard the, the you know coronavirus happened and then the economy started tanking. We're like, yes, everything is on sale. There is nowhere to go but up. Even if it goes down further, we can put more money into this. And so what we actually did is um, our bank came out with, uh, hey, we've heard everybody's lost their jobs. They're having unemployment issues. We're going to give everybody a deal. You can withdraw your CDs early, penalty-free. We'll give you everything that's in your CD. And we're just like, heck yeah, we'll take all these CDs and put them right into the stock market. I guess I guess Carol's pretty thoroughly covered what you do if you're still saving for financial independence. Uh, I, I don't have anything to add to that. And when you're in financial independence, the math of the 4% safe withdrawal rate, all the simulations and assumptions that go into that computer study, that's exactly what is supposed to happen during a recession. The, the math is intended to give you enough in assets that even if there is a recession, that your portfolio will have enough to survive. And so it's always distressing to be starting financial independence or, you know, you quit your job just two or three months ago and suddenly there's a gigantic recession. Mm -hmm. But the reality is you have enough money to get through these and you should be just fine. And if you stay invested in your asset allocation, then you'll pull through and you'll go climbing back up the other side. So this is actually a very good time to be financially independent. And I, I would tell people that are struggling financially during this time of your life, there's really two ways to go through the rest of your life from here. One way is when you're living paycheck to paycheck and trying to struggle with debts and a consumer lifestyle, and this is what happens in a recession. Or the other side is where you're being frugal, you're saving, you're investing, and trying to get that high savings rate and saving for financial independence. And when the bear market comes along, you're much more resilient. You've got a much better safety factor. Okay, because... I was thinking, well, Doug, you're, uh, you have this portfolio, but now it's, I mean, the value has dropped significantly, probably 20% or I don't know, maybe 15. So it's quite a huge drop. And so you're not stressed about it. <laughs> no, in fact, uh, we, uh, we, when we reached financial independence uh, and we didn't reach it, uh, we, we reached it in 1999, but we didn't realize it at the time. And then I retired in 2002. And we stayed invested aggressively that greater than 95% stocks. And so it grew very well. Now, we went through a recession at the end of 2002. We went through the uh, financial great recession in 2008, 2009. But our portfolio had grown very quickly up until that point. Very volatile, right? Big mm -hmm, swings. Yeah. And, and it grew again during the last 11 years of the bull market. Now, a year ago, I was looking at it and saying, this is ridiculously high. This just seems stupidly <laughs> this is too excessive. Yeah. This is too much. Yeah. 
But the reality was we had more money than we needed. And when the stock market goes up 30% in 2019, you know that you're not going to see that happen again for a while. And sure enough. And so we've dropped uh, 25% from that peak of 2019. But a lot of it's come back. The, the whole point is we had more money than we needed last year. We still have more money than we need. And that's going to continue for the rest of our lives. Uh, we haven't had to make any changes to our financial lifestyle, uh, of course, we're not traveling in Europe this year right now. We're staying at home. I'm not surfing as much as I wish I could, but we're not worried about the money. We're not stressed over our financial security. Yeah, that's great. That's a great place to be. And Doug, oh, yeah. uh, I read a few of your posts uh, on your website, yeah. The Military Guide, and there's something that you, you repeat often, is that when you invest, there are three factors you can control. Yep. The only, the only three things you really can control right? Is the amount of money you save, your asset allocation, and the expense ratios you pay for that asset allocation. Those are absolutely under our control. Mm -hmm. Everything else that we think we might be able to control or might have some influence over, that's that's not right. You, you can't really control your investments with timing through a recession or a bear market. Uh, you can try to uh, time <laughs> the market, bull market, right? You can say, well, this bull market is stupidly high. I'm going to sell And I knew a lot of people that were doing that in 2016, 17, and, and 18. They missed out as well. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. And they're very sad. Now, uh, from the American stock market, the uh, current levels in the stock market look like about 2016, 2017. Mm -hmm. So people that were selling out then to sit on the sidelines and wait for values to return to something more affordable or more of a discount – Well, they've just missed out on three years of gigantic returns and they can buy back into the stock market where they got out three or four years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like losing so, time. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. Don't try to time mark. Yeah. Just uh, focus on the things you can control, that amount of money you put in and your savings rate, mm -hmm. your asset allocation and your expense ratio. Okay, very good. And and then I have a question because, okay, you were leaving, living a, a frugal lifestyle mm -hmm. and... I don't know if that was popular uh, because in Hawaii, uh, when you grew up, uh, for example, uh, Carol, I don't know if mm -hmm. that was popular among your friends, if you had already the, the frugal habits. I mean, you mentioned video games and uh, whatever entertainment. I don't know. So then was it, were you already frugal yourself at 10 years old or as a teenager? Or were you yes. still a, a, like a regular teenager, let's say? And didn't care about all these things, but just being a bit of a nerd with the stock, I mean, with the investing in the stock markets. And, and it's a yes and no answer. Um, I think a lot of what people consider rich is relative to the community that you grew up in, the neighborhood that you grew up. And so, you know, mom and dad raised me in a, a generally middle, slightly upper middle class situation. You know, we live in we live in suburbia. If there is such a thing in Hawaii, we do live in suburbia. And so a lot of the people, a lot of the kids around me can afford brands. And there are kids that wear brand names and there are kids that carry expensive purses and backpacks and hats and shoes and and clothes and cars and bikes. <laughs> and you can the list can keep going. I mean there's always going to be some kind of craze. Uh, there are a couple of things that made me stand out. One is that I was very different from everybody else ethnically, you know, Mom and dad are, we're all white and Hawaii is very much a lot of Asian and Pacific Islander. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to clothing sizes in stores, it's never in my size. But if you go to the thrift <laughs> shops and you can find it, you can find things in your size because that's all the rejected clothing because no one else <laughs> could figure out how to fit it. But, but it fit for me. I think the only thing that clothing wise I really bought new was underwear always, of course. And then shoes, shoes were the other things I could always find new. Mm -hmm. And then when it came to possessions, 
one of the things because I started with an allowance at such a young age, I got to appreciate early the the diminishing effect of happiness when you bring something home. I mean, it looks so good when you're in a department store and you see those bright lights and those clean shelves and the brand new packaging and it's all lined up neatly in a row and you get to be that one kid that can actually pull it down from the shelf and take it home. But then when you take it home, now you got to dust it. Now you got to clean it. You got to put the batteries into it. You got to make sure you keep track of it because I can't remember where I put it last. I can't remember if I lent it to a friend to borrow. And and after a while, stuff just accumulates. You know, it 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 just has that diminishing happiness to it. And and because I had started with an allowance at age four, and I knew that effect over you know between ages four and sixteen, I could appreciate that if I bought something just a little bit cheaper, I wouldn't feel so bad about the money that I'd lost, but I still get the equal amount of happiness. Yeah, yeah, I remember these conversations. You know, you're in the store with your parents, and I don't know, let's say you're eight or nine years old. You see, uh, I think for me it was uh, uh, like cars, like you know, like that you can uh, pilot, you know, or a radio ga- guided with a remote, oh, yeah. remote control. Oh, yeah. Those are good. Let's say, for example, and then you know, I mean, it's uh, fictive. I don't remember exactly, but I would say something like, "Hey, I like this car. Uh, can I have it?" And then p- my dad or my mom would say. Yeah, but then we need to buy batteries and this and that. Yeah, no, it's okay. I don't care. Or you need to charge it, whatever. <laughs> no, I don't care. Let's have it. You know, you really want that thing, that toy, or maybe later it's goods or clothing. No, no, it's okay. I, I, I want this uh, T-shirt. Yeah, it doesn't matter about the size and this and that. No, no, it's okay. I'll wear it. I will love it. And then it's true that after maybe uh, even one week, you're tired of it or something doesn't work or it's not exactly what you wanted. And uh, yeah. But you know, exactly. when you're, uh, I mean, usually people don't think like that as a, as a young kid or as a teenager. So that's uh, kind of funny. So I don't know if, if Doug, uh, you, how did you raise, uh, Carol? <laughs> I mean, what, how did you, uh, instill or educate the, the money savvy part, uh, for your kids? Well, again, the, they're going to make their management skills from all the mistakes they make as they learn to manage their money. So you'll sit there and talk with them about it and see if they're really interested in it or if it's just a, a short, uh, intense burst of uh, some kind of infatuation with that that toy, that idea. And mm-hmm. then you'll talk through their feelings. And eventually, as you talk through their feelings, they understand how they feel and what's normal and what's uh, different. And they realize that their emotions are manipulated by the stores or by the advertising And as they go on, they realize what's important to them, what they're really willing to work for. And you might have heard this yourself when you wanted something as a teenager, your parents would say, well, you're going to have to spend your own money for that. Mm-hmm. And and that's when you realize you've got to spend your life energy to get this uh, toy or this wonderful thing. And you realize how much you're going to have to work to make that happen. And that's when you figure out what your values are and what your emotions are. Again, it's Better to have kids start at a young age learning from making these mistakes and making those mistakes over and over and over again at home in in a place where it's safer and where you're loved and you're secure and and to work through all that and get better at it before you leave the house and start trying to make your way in the world. And so uh, Carol did exactly that. She made a <laughs> tremendous number of mistakes at home. We, we parents made our share of mistakes as well. But we all kept talking through it and learning from it. And so by the time she was in high school, by the time she went to college, I think you were able to tell that there were other people that were uh, less skilled, less experienced than you were by then. Is that right, Carol? Oh, yeah. And it yeah. was it was very different, especially when you go to college, because you see people from different communities all over the country and all over the world. So mm-hmm. it's very interesting to see how different people approach stuff and what they found to 
buy yeah. what what they found a value in physically and and what they found value in whether it's something electronic like a TV or maybe even a subscription service instead it was it was very interesting to see how people valued things differently mm-hmm. and then did you have conversations with your friends when you were a teenager and they thought you were weirdo basically because you were you were using <laughs> these words these expressions uh, such as uh, life energy and so on Uh, well, if you don't mind me feeling this one, Dad, uh, for, for oh, Dad, yeah. that wasn't really something in his time period. You know, when he was a teenager, he wasn't really talking about financial independence yet. But for me as a teenager, that's when financial independence really did start kicking off. And so mm-hmm. that was the time period where I did sound weird because I was that kid that was walking around with the checkbook. You know, after the age of 13, I was that kid that had the credit card. I was that kid that that could talk about, you know, the stock market. And I could talk about mutual funds and I could talk about return on investment. And everyone's sitting over here like, And and your parents give you money. It's like, yeah, I get an allowance, but I also get a budget for my food and I get a budget for my clothing, I get a budget for gas. And they're just like, wait, you get a budget? What do you mean by it? And it just went downhill from there. And so after a while, <laughs> after a while, I just learned not to talk about money unless people explicitly ask me a question. You know, hey, what do your parents do for your allowance? Oh, they do this, this, and this. Okay, what is that? Well, they do this. And so that became easier to just answer the question than it was to just talk about it at large. One one of the things that took a while for families to, like like us parents and other families to understand is that it's not that we gave Carol a big dump truck full of money and said go manage this. Mm-hmm. What we did is we started small, and the money that she was learning to manage was the money that it would have cost to raise her anyway. Instead of my wife and I being in charge of figuring out what clothing she would wear for her entire life growing up in our house. We started giving her more and more choices over that, and we started letting her control the money that went into her clothing budget. And then we started letting her run the money that went into her grocery budget and her bicycle transportation budget and her entertainment budget. And so the money that we would have spent on raising her anyway, mm-hmm. as the years went on, she got more and more control over that and learned to manage learned to manage larger and larger sums of money along the way. And so by the time she was a teenager, she was managing – more money than most teens do and she was making mistakes with it but she was also getting very skilled in it and not intimidated and not worried about it okay that's a great place uh, to be and, and i like to hear that uh, one thing the teenage years are the rebel years so <laughs> did you have any moment where you said oh well screw this uh, i'm gonna spend my money how i want Or I don't know. I'm fed up with this uh, with this plan. There was not necessarily a rebellion, so to speak. There was a couple of times where I came very close to overspending my money, mm-hmm. but that was more of a lack of management than it was trying to stick it to my mom and dad. Um, I recognized that personal finance was personal at a at a young age, and I was going to reap the consequences no matter what. It didn't matter whether or not I was trying to you know rebel against mom and dad. It was my consequences to suffer. So if I overspent my credit card, well, guess who was going to have to do the extra chores to be able to get that money back for the credit card? And if I didn't use my allowance properly, well, mom and dad were just going to let me be a stinky teenager. I was just going to have to learn how to deal with that. I th- I think the most interesting example was the cell phone. We we did not appreciate oh, yeah. the cell phone one little bit. No, but that's a good story. Um, mom and dad had grown up in a lifestyle where the Navy is on call 24-7. And at some point, they were get- actually given cell phones in the 90s and the early 2000s that they could literally be on call 24-7. Mm-hmm. And so for For mom and dad, cell phones were always a work tool. They were always something that you had to have because something could go wrong at any moment. But for me being a teenager, 
cell phones were social. Cell phones were about uh, meeting up for group projects. They were about meeting up for after-school hangouts. They were about being able to put your plans together for the weekend so you could go hang out at the beach together. And so for me, I had a more positive view of cell phones, but because mom and dad sell them as a work tool and I didn't necessarily need them for the after-school jobs that I had, then they weren't going to fund a cell phone for me. So when I got my first job, one of the first things I did was I bought my own pay-as-you-go cell phone, and it was 10 cents a minute and 25 cents a text. And I made it very clear to all the people that I would interact with that I was not going to pay for chain text. I was not going to pay for for scam calls. Like I, you know, I only have so much money and yeah. I would love to hang out with you guys, but I cannot afford texting and hanging out with you guys. And so it worked out nicely in that eventually mom and dad came around to the idea of, oh, cell phones are a social thing nowadays. And that's really the overall transition that the world had was cell phones went from being a corporate marketing and a job tool to becoming more of a social tool. Mm -hmm. And the other thing we didn't appreciate for a very long time is that the cell phone was an essential school tool. You know, Carol would have these meetings with her group projects or the teacher would be giving some extra help and they would be coordinating these meetings by cell phone, by texts. And if she didn't have a phone, she was out of the loop and she would usually miss out. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, are these anecdotes part of your book, actually? Absolutely. We uh, we tell these stories in a book. We uh, we tell our story from our parents' side, and then Carol tells us how it really worked out from her perspective. <laughs> uh, sometimes sometimes we nailed it. Sometimes uh, it was a very good lesson, and it was very effective. Uh, other times, not so much. And uh, this is what parenting is like. You uh, try the things that you think will work, and sometimes they work, and sometimes they don't. So what was the main reason for writing the book? I kept uh, getting these questions. I, I I know you might have heard a little bit about this story, but uh, I've been going to financial conferences for a long time, uh, over a decade. And uh, my wife and I started going to uh, small meetups over weekends. Uh, in America, there's Camp FI and another one called Camp Mustache. I would talk at those conferences about different parts of financial independence. Yeah, I'd talk about how to save for it. I'd talk about lifestyle. And at some point, somebody would raise their hands and say, I understand. I get it. But how did you raise your kids to get these skills? How did you teach your kids to be smart with their money? And the first couple of times I got the question, I just kind of babbled an answer and got through the discussion without really having a lot to talk about. Uh, and then in 2017, uh, we had it happen again at a conference. And my wife turned to me after I'd finished answering the question. And she said, Nords, you got to write that book. <laughs> and so we came back Uh, we were visiting uh, our daughter and our son-in-law at the time. And so we came back to their apartment from this financial conference and we were sitting around dinner and uh, I said, Hey, I got that question again at the financial conference, Carol. It was that one about how to raise a kid that's uh, smart with money. Uh, and, and do you have any stories that, that really resonated with you? Do you have any of the memories that really uh, hit it with you for uh, raising a money savvy kid? A 15 and, page uh, outline later. Uh-huh. Yeah. She was <laughs> off and running. Uh, she had quite a bit of on her mind about about that. And uh, so by the end of the dinner, we had an outline and a couple days later, she started writing. Oh, well, that's a great family project, actually. <laughs> it is. It, I re I've tremendously enjoyed this. It turns out she's the better writer. You know, she she's got the story and it's a very compelling set of stories. And the fact that we do it back and forth, uh, telling both sides of the same story uh, helps parents understand what the kid's perspective on this is, because you have to do this with a way that the child will understand and make that an internal incentive. You know, I, I'm sure you've gone through this where you've sat there and told your kids, this is the way it has to be. And you shake your finger at them and admonish them. And maybe they'll listen to you. Maybe they won't. 
But if it becomes an incentive that they own, that they want to make work, if it's their life energy, if it's their rewards, they'll get it. They'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's great. And Carol and Doug, we have come at the end of the show. Thanks so much. I think it was very insightful. And I think the, the tips and the stories uh, will help people uh, reaching financial independence. And um, yeah, before we uh, close, we always have this questions, the three quick fire questions. All right. And the first question is, ladies first, so Carol first, uh, what has been your best investment so far? Oh man, it's been pretty much, honestly, it's been the investment in my marriage. It's been me and my husband and everything that we do together. Oh. That's, been, that's been pretty good. Oh, that's good. I never heard that, uh, that one. So that's, uh, that's excellent. <laughs> those two, those two really like each other. It's a, uh, it's fun to watch. Okay. That's great. <laughs> and Doug, what has been your best investment? Over the last 40 years, the best investment I've had yet is the total stock market index fund with uh, an expense ratio of 0.03%. Oh, I haven't nothing. had anything that good. That's right. Uh, that's been our best investment. Okay. Even through the coronavirus times, it's still a, it's still a recommendation. Absolutely. It's volatile, right? Yeah. But it also gives you 99.97% of the stock market for uh, a fraction of a percent of the effort. Okay, excellent. And then the second question, uh, we already talked about some books, so I have a, an idea of which one, but I always ask the guests, what is your, the favorite book, your favorite book you can recommend to anyone? It does not need to be financial. So, uh, Carol? I'm a sucker for the Harry Potter series. I would oh, really? always say, go read the Harry Potter series. Yes, I, I'm a big fan of the way J.K. Rowling framed out that book series and the way that she went about writing it. Cause there's, It's a great story. And to hear all the work that she did in the background to make that story great is also fascinating. Mm -hmm. And I've read not every book, but I've read the first one and then the three last ones. Oh, yeah. And you really see the, the evolution. Huh? So it's... Uh... Oh, yeah. Entering into the complexity of the personalities, etc., and the, and the story itself—it's quite great. I, I, I like the evolution as well. And uh, you, uh, Doug? Well, your money or your life—that yeah. you know, we talked about that earlier. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Life changing. Mm -hmm. Great, great. And then the the last question is: uh, What is uh, the best purchase you've made for under a hundred dollars, Carol? Once upon a time, when I was in middle school, there used to be this after-school stand that had all these kinds of little, uh, what is it called, like uh, school supplies. And it used to have things like pencils and pens and so on and so forth. I found a little stapler. It was about this long. Mm -hmm. And it could completely fold flat. And it was something that made me realize how different things could be. So I don't think I paid more than $15 for it. But I was the kid that had the stapler in my backpack. And everyone's like, what stapler? Oh, this stapler. You know, it looks like a half deck of cards. And it's small enough that you could carry around. But it came in handy a lot of times. Okay, excellent. And, and uh, I wouldn't think of that, but okay, that's great. That's why I'm asking these questions. And uh, you, Doug, do you have a purchase under $100? Uh, it's well under $100. It's about one euro, and it's a cake of surf wax. And this is going to sound <laughs> a little silly. Yeah, you're already laughing. But every time I get out a piece of surf wax and start waxing down my board, I get this big goofy smile on my face because I know that I'm going to go out there and start having fun on the waves. And so just seeing and smelling that surf wax and getting it on a board, it brings me a great joy even before I paddle out. 
Well, that that's the maybe the best return on investment you ever made. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, excellent. That's excellent. And guys, uh, well, uh, Doug, um, where can people uh, find out more about you? Well, I'm, I'm online uh, at The Military Guide, and it's uh, easy to use a search engine. Just search for The Military Guide. Uh, we've been doing this for 10 years now, so we're pretty high up on the search engine rankings. Uh, or search for my name, Doug Nordman. You'll come right across The Military Guide. And uh, that's the first book that I've written, and we'll eventually come out with a second edition for that. It's about military personal finance for military families, U.S. military families. Um, the secret is that the math works the same for civilians as it does for military. Yeah. But, but please don't tell my readers that. They might read other books. <laughs> Very good. And uh, you, Carol, where can uh, people find, find out more about you? So the website is under heavy construction right now, but it's called childfire.com. <laughs> you know, it's, it's teaching kids about financial independence early. So childfire.com. And then like dad said, I'm also on Facebook. I'm running around a lot of the groups as well. And you can find me by name on Facebook. Okay. Very good. And anyway, I'll link all the information in the show notes. So that's good. Okay. So the listeners can find you as well. And yeah, guys, uh, well, thanks so much for uh, joining the show today. Uh, I think it was very good. So uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks for your time and uh, yeah, for connecting from so far with such a time difference. It was a pleasure. And thanks again. I really Thank appreciate you. it. Talk uh, to you later. Okay. See you. I had a really great time speaking to uh, Doug and Carol on the podcast. I think it was a great episode. So I hope uh, you enjoyed it as well and that you learned something from it. And yeah, before we close off, uh, here are the key takeaways for today. So number one, we talked about early retirement with Doug and uh, what he had to say is that If your job is fulfilling, there might be no great reason to retire as such, actually. You can, stay, <clears throat> you can stay at your current occupation for a few more years. Do not pursue retirement because you are unhappy uh, with your current situation, for example. Don't forget that if you retire, you have to retire to something. You will become responsible of your time and you will have to design uh, your life. And next, I really like that one uh, about adopting a frugal lifestyle. And Doug puts it well. He said, well, it does not mean recycling toilet paper, living in your parents' basements and other money hacks, let's say. I mean, frugality is about optimizing your lifestyle and spending your money intentionally. And on investing, everyone can start investing to become financially independent. And it typically takes 20, 25 years, depending on your savings rate. And yes, the current pandemic should not be a showstopper for you to start investing in the stock markets. And on that note, there are three factors you can control when investing. That's your savings rate, your asset allocation, and your expense ratio. And the last tip from Doug, which is something we've been talking about before on the podcast, namely with the poor Swiss, is to not to try to time the market. Next, moving on to the, the raising kids part. So how to make your kids money savvy. Here are a few tips. I really like that anecdote when uh, Doug cut out uh, some snippets of a newspaper and gave them to Carol when she was a teenager. Instead of giving her a book, maybe a good way is to yeah, do the same, print, print out articles which are short, show uh, maybe a small video on social media. I mean, that's how it is these days. So yeah, make it easy for them to absorb some uh, financial information. Another great tip to educate your kids about money is to give them an allowance. And this is what helped Carol understand the diminishing effect of happiness from a purchase from a young age already. I think one of the key advice here from Doug is to keep an open dialogue with your kids, talk through their feelings about purchases, 
and how their emotions are manipulated through advertising, for example. Allow your kids to make mistakes, allow yourself to make mistakes, you will make them too, um, and allow them to make mistakes from a safe place, from your home, before they go into the uh, outside world. Keep talking about the experiences and let them learn from it. And I will just end up with something Doug mentioned in the episode, is that your kid needs to make managing money an internal incentive. If it becomes their reward, their life energy, and if they want to make it work, they'll get it and they will figure it out. So that was it for today. Thank you so much for listening. It really means a lot to me. Make sure you subscribe in Apple Podcast. And of course, please do not hesitate to contact me. If you have any questions or feedback, send me an email, john at johnnytalks.com or connect through social media at johnnytalks on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And amigos, once more, thanks so much for listening and I'll speak to you next time.